Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. The night coming on very early now. Try to catch an hour or two of sunshine before it's gone again because this is the time of the year we run to the sun and not from it. And if you cannot get outside till the last rays are scattering over the western mountains, so be it. If you are a desert walker, you know how to navigate after the sun goes down. You learn to do this in July and August. When it's not tolerable until the sun goes down, you learn to avoid those canyon corners and washes that get so shadowy and dark way too quickly. Too dark to make out the rattlesnakes all curled up on a patch of sand still warm from the long day. Many a nighttime drives to the distant all-night animal clinic have been caused by such lack of visibility in summertime. When the dog walks right onto the thing, rattlesnake avoidance training or not... So let me throw in a public service announcement here and mention that if you've got dogs and they wander the desert with you, even if it's only the acre behind your cabin, the rattlesnake vaccine costs about $30 a shot at the vet's office, which is about $1,170 less than a single vial of rattlesnake anti-venom. And a big dog might need four or five vials of anti-venom to survive a rattler bite. Unless it got that $30 shot, ideally in the early springtime when the snakes come out again. Which is when you should do it if you've got dogs once a year. Almost every kind of insurance is an evil scam dreamed up by the worst people alive. Even when the insurance is ultimately helpful in a situation, but 30 bucks, a one-time charge. No monthly billing, no automated rejection of life-saving surgery or medicines, etc. 30 bucks is a good price. Now where were we? Racing the sun trying to get away from the bad things into the good place while there's still some daylight or dusk light. One thing you get pretty good at if you're a desert walker is getting around long after the sun goes down. A half moon is helpful, a full moon sort of distracting with all the shadows it throws, but no moon or a new moon is fine too. I know where I'm going. 
But when it's cooler out on a night in autumn, the snakes are snuggled warm in their dens. Catclaw is your only real enemy on such darkened strolls. Speaking of Catclaw, which is officially called... Eh, who cares? The heavy summer rains have been very kind to the aspirations of that interesting thorny bush or tree or whatever it is. You know how they start. And these days are coming out of everything. Every crack in the pavement, one long stick with a handful of little green leaves and the special hooked thorns... Left alone for a half dozen years, it becomes a big clump of long woody branches that is just beautiful when it blooms with red or yellow flowers. The hummingbirds just love them. Left alone for a couple of decades, it becomes a tree, often hosting clumps of desert mistletoe, the Christmas time delight. Favorite food of the wonderful songbird called the Phanopepla. It's fantastic crest standing tall like Joe Strummer's Travis Bigel Mohawk. You can make hunting bows from cat claw branches. People have been doing it for thousands of years. A good, strong, flexible wood. Just make sure to cut off the thorns. I've seen strange things this autumn in the desert. Double the annual rainfall will do that, especially when that rain comes in the warm, warm summertime. Just the other day, I came across a four-foot-tall single sunflower, half-bloomed, on a desert mountain ridge about 4,000 feet in elevation. What are you doing here, friend? And big sorghum plants with leaves like corn stalks full of bushy grain on top. Those are coming up around me. A century ago, people planted this African grain in the Mojave here and there. They try anything. Some people call it broom grass now. And I've never seen it come up like this, not before the hurricane. And it's a lot better than the devil's bumper crop of goat head now injuring humans and other animals throughout the desert lands. Speaking of birds, at some point we were speaking of birds, I saw somewhere that the bird professionals, the bird fanatics, have renamed a bunch of birds and put out a new official bird book with the new names and are now yelling at regular people regarding the use of these made-up new bird names. Well, here's an idea. Stop doing that. Do something useful like restoring habitat for songbirds and other wildlife. If you're sitting around on a Zoom conference under fluorescent lights in some office building or university or whatever, and your job is implementing the committee's changing of the bird names, just walk out. Don't say goodbye. Use the common names for things, and you'll find that people tend to know what you're talking about, and also they won't shun you quite so much. Language is ever-changing, of course, but as the French government has learned after 
centuries of creating official new French names for various internationally known objects and concepts, such as the computer mouse and esports, it just doesn't work. The new French term for esports itself a ridiculous phrase meaning sitting on your backside playing video games is je vidéo de compétition. Meanwhile, the words sport and électronique are already French words. But our beautiful mongrel tongue, the English language, chaotic and dynamic, has never had an official academic police department. Which is why Shakespeare, in the same period that France started policing French, was able to adapt and adopt and just plain invent the words and phrases necessary for his art to make his plays and poems come alive. And the primary reason English is such a rich, use-what-works language today can in large part be traced to the Norman conquest of England in 1066. That's when the old Anglo-Saxon tongue began to adopt and adapt some 10,000 words from the old French in various parts of hand-me-down Latin. Depending on the linguists making the claim, anywhere from half to two-thirds of English vocabulary is French, or Anglo-Norman, or Norman Picard in its origin. So here are some words and phrases William Shakespeare either wrote down for the first time or invented. Alligator, from Romeo and Juliet. Skim milk, from Henry IV, Part One. Rant, from Hamlet. Traditional, from Richard III. Worthless, from Two Gentlemen of Verona. Undress, from Taming of the Shrew. And obscene from Love's Labor's Lost. Even Puppy Dog, that comes from King John, and there are many hundreds more. Depending on your view of what counts as a word, or a new word, or a new phrase, or etc., the fact is, these are things we say today, and before Will Shakespeare became a popular playwright, they were at least unknown in writing and theater. Did you know that every single little American town and most American neighborhoods used to have a nice, locally-owned, going-out restaurant, often a steakhouse, but always a place with a semi-detached cocktail lounge with a piano player? Maybe a small combo on weekends? Yucca Valley used to have a place like that from the 1950s to when the Great Regression began around 1980. I don't know when exactly the Glen made the transition to Reflections, the most 1980s name of anything ever, and then came the who-knows years when everything began to noticeably decline on a community level. Let us remember the Glen, and I thank my friends Ryan and Dave for sending me this fantastic historical artifact some months or years ago. The Glen Coffee Shop and Cocktail Lounge, and there's a photo on this flyer, a picture that reveals this same location was later home to such mostly forgotten institutions as uh, the 
rib company, Gotti's, and most recently something called the Aw Bar. Not all. Awe, like what you're supposed to feel when having a direct encounter with a god, a deity. And that wasn't their vibe, as they say. On the flyer it says, Duke Cornish on the organ. How often? Six nights a week, seven nights a week during the glory days in Yucca Valley. Can you even imagine such a thing? And this was a local restaurant for locals. The prices were affordable. A weekly splurge for regular folks, a nightly hangout for the real estate agents, the confidence men. But you could take the family out for breakfast after church, as most middle-class people in Yucca Valley remember doing. And you could take the mistress there for a whiskey sour and some oysters Rockefeller on Saturday night, before church, you know. Maybe Duke Cornish will play That's Life like he does every night on that hot organ. Been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king, up and down and over and out, etc., etc., back in the race. And after that, maybe the Duke will play something slow and romantic. One for my baby and one for the road. No, that's not right. Not for tonight. How about witchcraft? That might just do the trick, or everybody loves somebody sometimes. The whole back parking lot of the Glen was like the submarine races come two in the morning, and more than a few drove right into that giant flood-controlled ditch instead of successfully putting it into reverse. Many problems in the morning. Miss Beverly had to make up a pretty good excuse and put on some... Extra foundation to cover the many minor injuries she suffered from the broken windshield glass. Mr. Bradley had to call in a few favors to keep his job at the school district. Lunches, dinners, cocktails, breakfast served all day. Your hosts, Scotty and Margot Gillanders in the heart emoji of town. Yucca Valley, phone 365-9910. The matchbook says the Glen is the high desert's newest and finest restaurant and cocktail lounge, air-conditioned, banquet room available. 56193 29 Palms Highway, food served 6 a.m. till 9 p.m. Lounge open 9 a.m. till 2 a.m. nightly. You can see the newspaper racks outside. You get your paper on the way in, the sports final. Put that on my ticket, will you, Jody? Used all my dimes at the bowling alley last night. Scottish stuff was in vogue then, like the wonderful old Tam O'Shanter in Atwater Village, designed and built by the legendary Desert Rat scrapbook publisher and architect. From the World War II years to 1965, the artist and humorist and hugely influential architect Harry Oliver published his Desert Rat scrapbook. He called it a pocket-sized newspaper covering the Great Southwest. And if you're saying so that's where the idea for Desert Oracle came from, you'd be wrong. I'd never heard of Harry Oliver's Desert Rat scrapbook until the second issue of Desert Oracle, which I was dropping off to sell at the old Sagebrush Press bookstore in Yucca Valley back in the spring of 2015, 
And the bookshop's owner, Dan Cronkite, showed me a couple of vintage copies he had from the 1940s and 50s. They're not bound like a book or magazine, but folded down from one large sheet of colored cardstock and printed on both sides. With all kinds of cornball cartoons, burrows, and jackrabbits, and beautifully made woodcut titles, and the claim that it was the only newspaper you could open in the wind, and the deserts are notoriously windy. Well, I ended up trading a stack of new desert oracles for a much thinner stack of desert rat scrapbooks, and that's when I began the hunt for Harry Oliver's biography, which only exists, as far as I know, in a handful of old homemade web pages and even older newspaper clippings. So let this serve as an appetizer like you might get at the Glen at the beginning of another wild weekend in Yucca Valley. Harry Oliver grew up like Tom Sawyer, like Tom Sawyer's creator Sam Clemens in a little Mississippi River town, Hastings, Minnesota, born in 1888. By the turn of the century, he had left school before completing fourth grade and was working in a print shop setting type. He made posters, he printed newspapers, and he took the first of many jobs with a circus. As a young man, he followed his family to Santa Cruz, California, where they owned a chicken farm, and Harry rode a donkey for the U.S. Forest Service. Having the showbiz bug, he also worked for local theaters as a scenic artist. When a movie company came to town to shoot some exteriors, he got himself a job and went back to the new boomtown of Hollywood where he became an influential set director, creating the look of influential films, including the 1920s and 1930s black-and-white original versions of Ben-Hur, Scarface. He worked on Viva Via, Mark of the Vampire, Street Angels, Seventh Heaven, and his sets had a tremendous impact on the new German Expressionist movement. By the middle 1930s, he had retired from the grind of movie making and was building his sets as real-life storybook buildings, like the famous Witch House of Beverly Hills, and his series of beautiful adobe houses he called home, including his old Fort Oliver and today's Thousand Palms, not far from the Coachella Valley Wildlife Refuge and 20 miles due south of Joshua Tree as the vulture flies. He was still putting out occasional Desert Rat scrapbooks when he was pushing 80 years old, and he passed away in California back in 1973. And it turns out the UFO writer Greg Bishop, also the author of Weird California and Project Beta, pitched me a story on Harry Oliver, so I thought I should get him on the line seven years later. Now I've just got to get his piece published and an upcoming issue of Desert Oracle. I sure wish I had my own printing press, like Harry Oliver did. This is Desert Oracle Radio, and I've been meaning to talk about Harry Oliver on this show pretty much from the beginning, going back seven years now, and at one point, the author Greg Bishop wanted to do an article for the periodical, also called Desert Oracle, and I have such a hard time getting that magazine out, the endless search for a printing house that won't bankrupt me, 
etc., the postage doubling. So like a lot of ideas, it never materialized. But I've got him on the line here, and I want to ask a couple of questions about this endearing desert hermit, Harry Oliver. Greg Bishop, welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. Thank you, and finally. (laughs) There was an accident this week that reminded me that you know a lot of stuff about Harry Oliver. Tell me how that happened. I'm just interested in desert stuff. Of course, I was reading the Desert Oracle when it first came out, and subsequently. But because of that, and I don't know where I found it, it must have been in a bookstore or maybe online, I found a copy of something called the Desert Rat Scrapbook. It was written, edited, typeset, and printed, I believe, by Harry Oliver, who was a desert eccentric, or at least he grew into a desert eccentric. He was not originally from the desert, like most people in the desert, right? Especially out here. Desert Rat Scrapbook was, it wasn't even grandpa humor, it was just very unique to Harry Oliver. He told tall tales. He told stories of desert people like Death Valley Scotty. The thing was the size of a digest, and it just has a nice woodcut illustration, usually on the front. The bottom of it always has the only newspaper you can open in the wind. Yes. Because it was printed on this hard, kind of like heavy stock. But you would unfold it, and it ended up being like this huge paper, but it's just folded down in this tiny little digest so he could, he could um, mail it out. Which he also there, did himself, right? Every, yeah, yeah. Every single bit of the production of that, of Deseret Scrapbook, was done by Harry Oliver, as far as I can tell. Even the printing, I think he had a printing press. He would... He would typeset it in one of his uh, many places he lived in. Well, many, I think I know of two. He lived in Borrego Springs for a while, where he helped establish the Peg Leg Smith Liars Contest. He lived in Thousand Palms, which is near Palm Springs. He built all his houses by himself out of adobe bricks that he made. That's right, Old Fort Oliver, and that was on what is today Ramon Road. I've read many times that it's just covered over with a, with a mini mart or a gas station or something now. Which is horrible, because I think his ashes were either scattered or buried there. Or, oh, you know what? I think some of them were stuffed in one of the adobe walls by one of his daughters, but he asked her to do it. Oh, so now that, that's probably under the $6 a gallon unleaded pump. Yep, that, that's, that's, where, that's where Harry's ashes went. His first house I know of when he was working for the film studios in the 20s, the teens and 20s, he was an art director. I think he was nominated for an Academy Award when they started giving them, but he didn't win. He built himself an adobe house in probably 1912 or something along Bayona Creek or Bologna Creek in Culver City. That is gone now too, but uh, there's a warehouse or something there now, but he had a house there when he worked for, uh, for, um, I think it was a Willat Studios and he might've worked for Roach, but I'm not Hal Roach, but I'm not sure. And he also, while he was doing this, he invented which uh, uh, a architectural style that people call storybook, which was basically borrowed by Knott's Berry Farm, which he helped found or at least pro- promote. And Disneyland, yeah, I think Disney actually cited Harry Oliver as a very important influence on the architecture of Disneyland. You gave a talk up here in the high desert about Harry Oliver. When was that, and how did that come about? And what what was the gist of your talk? I think it was about 10 years ago, and my friend Barbara Harris and also Jane Poyawa, they were both involved with the uh, Morongo Basin Historical Society, and they needed somebody to come out and talk about some desert stuff. And I said, 
I want to write about Harry Oliver. I need a reason to go look for information on Harry Oliver. I went down to the LA Public Library, picked up articles and, and the very few books by him. They had a couple copies there. And I even went all the way out to the 29 Palms Public Library because they had one rare book that nobody else had. And then the talk was about an hour long and I had slides with it, of course. And after the talk, um, the uh, historical society said they wanted a copy of my notes so they could put in their files, which was great. It's the only, Ken, it's the only talk I ever did besides weird California stuff that wasn't about UFOs. You were one of the very few writers who has been fixated on UFO, mysterious stuff, and desert, real history, architecture, that kind of thing. You don't see a lot of crossover. No, not really. I've spoken probably 50 or 60 places on UFOs, about 10 on Weird California, and one on Harry Oliver. One on Harry Oliver. That's, you know, he's such a singular character that almost has to be how it is. Isaacs and across the great Mojave wilderness, this is Desert Oracle Radio with musical soundscapes on the program by Red, Blue, Black, Silver. And I'm your host, Ken Lane. There will be two more Desert Oracle live events in the year 20 and 23, both in Los Angeles, one after another, but otherwise entirely different shows. Coming up first on Friday, December 1st, I'm the opening act for the legendary sub-pop band Earth on the 30th anniversary of their heavy music classic record, Earth 2. At the Alex Theater in Glendale, tickets on sale now. On the following night, Saturday, December 2, it's the Desert Oracle Radio Holiday Show at Cafe Zebulon in... I call it Silver Lake. I guess it's officially Frogtown River Village or whatever. Names change. We are going to have an old-fashioned Christmas time program with musical guests, weird holiday stories, all recorded for broadcast. This is the early show, 7 to 9 p.m. at Zebulon, just under the 5 downhill from the Astro Diner. And I see here in the radio email, there's a note from the station asking me to do a new promo spot for Z107.7. Let's just do it right now while I'm here. It's just a regular small town with the regular features. A temple to the space monsters, a national park where the tourists tend to vanish. Nightly choruses of coyotes. That's our Mojave High Desert, more or less. Friday nights at 10 p.m. on KCDZ 107.7 FM. Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. That's what you call workplace efficiency. Thank you for tuning in tonight to Desert Oracle Radio. Enjoy these cool autumn nights 
Thanks for listening. And good night from the Voice of the Desert.